Now, this morning, as we come to our text in Revelation chapter 17, we're going to find something similar. We looked last week at the, the bold judgments in chapter 17. All, all seven of them poured out God's wrath, final judgment upon the earth. But we see more judgment coming in chapter 17 and 18. Now, it's not that 17 and 18 is, is more judgment. It's not that Genesis 2 is, is more creation. It's that Genesis 17 and 18 kind of fit inside of the bowls to, to explain them. Just as Genesis chapter 2 expands Genesis chapter 1, so also Revelation 17 and 18 expand Revelation chapter 16. And I think that the particular detail which he expands upon is found in chapter 16. So if you haven't done so, I encourage you to open your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, pull one out from the chair in front of you. It really helps you follow along. You can just see what I'm saying. It's just right there. Pull something up on your phone. We have in chapter 16, if you look there at verse 19, it says this, The great city was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Now, in many ways, I think that all of 17 and 18 are right there in that single verse. Now, there are some things that, that flood over to the sixth bowl and the seventh bowl, but, but I think that verse really, really helps about the destruction of this city, about all the nations are there are falling And remembering Babylon the Great, that's where the cup of God's wrath is finally poured out in completeness upon that that city there. 17 and 18 of Revelation are are about God's wrath being poured out upon Babylon. Babylon is pictured as a prostitute in chapter 17 and as a city in chapter 18. And this morning we're going to be looking at Babylon the prostitute and next week we'll look at the judgment upon Babylon the city. So, the story of, of this great prostitute is told in Revelation 17. My title of my message this morning is The Judgment of the Great Prostitute. In fact, as we read chapter 17, you can see this right there in the very first verse. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you, here it is, the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. It's what the whole chapter is about. The judgment of the great prostitute. 17, verse 2. With whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead were written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains upon which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings. 
five of whom will fall, and one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. And as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city. It has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, my first point this morning comes from verses 1 through 6. I'm simply calling it the prostitute because that's what we see. This is what the angel summons John to see more precisely. If you look at verse 1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Now, the first thing we notice about this prostitute is that she is seated. She's seated on many waters. You say, what does that mean? Now, there's lots of things in this chapter. You're probably like, what does that mean? That's good. Well, what does that mean? Well, John explains it for us in verse 15. If you look there, and the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are, here it is, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. That's what makes this prostitute great. It's not that she's good. It's not that she is beautiful, and that's why she's great. She's representing peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. In other words, right, she's great because she's large. This, This is the world. In particular, the prostitute is all the peoples of the world who live in all the nations of the world, who speak all the languages of the world. She's like seating on top of that, like she's ruling over them or, no, or knowing them or being part of that. So when you think about this great prostitute, you should think about her sitting upon all the nations of the earth, and this prostitute really is um, China, India, Peru, and France, and Nigeria, and Madagascar, and the United States, every nation and language of the world, as she sits there upon the world, above the world. And then verse 2 we describe further description of this, this prostitute who's sitting on the water, sitting all over the world, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, with the wine of those whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Now, because we know who the prostitute is, we can rightly understand what's understood by, by verse 2. Sexual immorality and drunkenness are, are metaphors to describe the seductive influence of the world, which are contrary to the ways of God, right? If you know your Old Testament, you know that God has often used this metaphor of of sexual immorality to describe the waywardness of the world, just often. Harlotry, prostitute, whoring. I mean, these words are common when, when God speaks about people being unfaithful. Isaiah 23, Tyre, the sinful coastal city, is described as singing the song of a prostitute. 
just it's who Tyre is. Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, condemned for all their whorings of the prostitute. And even Jerusalem, God's city, describes the prostitute. Isaiah 121 says this, how, fa- how the faithful city has become a prostitute. In other words, right here is this city, faithful to the Lord, but as the, as the city then turns away and pursues the things of the world, it's as, as if the city is a prostitute, turning away from her faithful husband. Entire books of the Old Testament are centered around this metaphor of Israel being unfaithful to God, their true lover. I'm thinking of what book of the Bible primarily? Thinking of Hosea. Hosea was, was called to take Gomer, this prostitute, as a wife. And they married, and she bore him children. But then she returned to her life of prostitution, and yet Hosea still loved her, and still pursued her, and still cared for her. And Hosea's marriage was like God's marriage to Israel. God took a sinful people and loved them, as any man loves his wife. But yet Israel proved to be unfaithful, pursuing other gods. Just like a prostitute pursues other men, Israel pursued other gods. But God loved her still. And called her back. And this imagery of the nations of the world being a prostitute is is not foreign to Scripture. It describes the the waywardness and error of the world to pursue their own pleasures. Forsaking their true love, which is described metaphorically here in in verse 2 of pursuing sexual pleasures. And drunkenness that that a prostitute might pursue. He says, you're pursuing those things. This prostitute of the world is pursuing their own sinful pleasures. Rather than being faithful to one true God. So you think about, well, what, what sins are we talking about here? I don't, well, sexual sins are certainly included, and drunkenness is certainly included. But I think it goes beyond that. I think it just speaks about, about the cities of the world, the people of the world, following and loving the world. So maybe it's their entertainment or the games and their shows that they seek, rather than the worship of God. Maybe they look to the beauty of nature and to the world, rather than looking to the beauty of God. Maybe they pursue their power and influence. And glory, rather than giving all glory to God, somehow they're turning from God, and that is the state of the world. That is this great prostitute, which, by the way, as an aside, sort of prepares us for Revelation 19. Revelation 19 speaks about how true followers of Christ are faithful to God, will, will not be a prostitute, but will be the bride of Christ and will marry Jesus. And they will seek to be faithful in marriage. There's one true love who is Jesus. That's true of all, of a, of a great marriage, right? The, the, the bride loves the groom, and the groom loves the bride. That's true of the church, that we, that we love Jesus, and, and he loves us. And if anything that we're looking to do at small groups, that's, that's the heart and the passion as a, as, as a church. Well, someday, right, it, it is the bride of Christ. It, it is supposed to not prostrate it, pros, be a, a prostitute, but it is to be with the Lord, loving the Lord in a right relationship with him. Why should we love the local church? Why should we be the bride of Christ and not the prostitute? We'll get to that in a few weeks. Well, this morning, right, we're, we're not considering those who are faithful to the Lord. Rather, we're considering the world, the people and multitudes and nations and languages who have demonstrated themselves to be a prostitute in going after the, forsaking the Lord and going after other men. Well, let's continue on. Verse 3. This is the angel, or this is John writing, and he, that is the angel, carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. It had seven heads and ten horns. All right, let's talk about John. We see him here being carried away in the spirit into the wilderness. This isn't the first time that John was carried away. 
There's several times in Revelation that John has been summoned to look at something and then taken away in the Spirit to go someplace to see it. In fact, way back in Revelation chapter 4, we read this in Revelation 4.1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. There's the summons. And then the next verse, we see John being transported in the Spirit elsewhere. At once, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And and truth be told, this is where John is between Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 17. He's in heaven. And I don't don't mean, right, a place of eternal bliss. I just mean the the spiritual realm, right, beyond the earth. You have the earth, the physical realm, and then he's taken into the, the spiritual realm. And John's given a vision what's really happening in this world. As Paul said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the, the rulers of the air, right? The, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And, and he's in the heavenly places. He's seeing the, the divine cosmic war, if you see what's happening. But first, in chapters 4 and 5, after being taken up into heaven, he sees the myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of angels worshiping the Lord. He sees all of creation worshiping the Lord. And then what, what's really happening in heaven is that judgments are coming out from heaven, right, upon the earth. It's the angels, right, so they open the seals in chapter 6. Or they blow the trumpets in chapters 8 and 9. Or they pour out the bowls of God's wrath. It originates, it comes from heaven, pushing down the, in the spiritual realm. And so what John is getting to see is not just the battle, but he's getting to kind of see the whole picture. He's stepping back, a little bit like like we see in the book of Job, where it's Satan that comes against Job, and, and Job only understands this. But we, in the book, we get to step back, and we see, get to see the spiritual forces happening in the book of Job. That's what's happening. He gets to see the spiritual forces, the spiritual battle between God and the devil and his minions, right? The beast and the false prophet. We read about this battle in, in Revelation 12 and 13. And what's really happening in, in the spiritual realm is that, that God is sealing and protecting his people, for the onslaughts of the world against them. You just read chapter 7 or 11 or 14. Common theme, right? Sealing his people to protect them. Now that's where we've been in Revelation. We've been in the heavenly realm. And yet now, the angel summons John to a different place, to the wilderness. He summons him and then he, he takes him. He summons him and in verse 1, Come, I'll show you this judgment. And then, verse 3, he carried me away in the Spirit. This, by the way, isn't the last time that we're going to see John summoned and moved to a different place. In chapter 21 and verse 9, you can see it. Like, these would be good verses to, like, like box out. The summons, in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And there's the summons in the next verse. We see John transported in the Spirit somewhere else. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. John is transported into the new Jerusalem. And, and there have been many who have taken these, these four transports. Well, the first one, right, island of Patmos, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. So he was, that's where he was. And then in the Spirit, he's taken to heaven. And then in the Spirit, he's taken to the wilderness. And then in the Spirit, he's taken to see the new Jerusalem. And many have outlined the book of Revelation in these visions of 1 through 3, this first vision on the island of Patmos, and 4 through 16, seeing what's going on in the heavens, and then... 17 through 20, right? When John goes in the wilderness to see the finality of judgment in detail. And then 21, 22, the, the fourth and final vision where John sees a new Jerusalem, the final destination for the people of God. So anyway, we're kind of like at one of those big places in the scriptures where, in the book of Revelation, where it, 
John is taken to see a different vision. There are four main visions, if you will. But even in the, the second vision that we've been going through, got all these other visions, so it's, all, it's more complex than that. But anyway, in John 3, we, in verse 3, we see John carried away in the Spirit into the wilderness. And this is what he saw. He said, And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Okay, you know that from time to time I try to I scourge, scourge, scrouge the internet and just looking for a, something in here is a scarlet beast. Uh, we don't see all of the, the blasphemous names on that beast. But blasphemous names would be like anything that speaks against the Lord. Anything that would lift the beast up in priority over the Lord. Had seven heads and, and ten horns. Verse draws me to the Wild West. Cowboys are riding their horses, right? Sitting high upon their beasts. And, and they're riding their beasts, complete control as they trot along. And that's the picture we get of this woman. It's interesting, though, right? The woman was seen upon many waters, and now she's seen upon this beast. So they're like moving and changing. Different implications, different meanings, different nuances. But do you remember the seven-headed beast with ten horns? We've seen that before. Do you remember what chapter? Chapter 13. You can turn back there and just look at the very beginning. Verse 4, verse of chapter 13. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on his horns and blasphemous names on his heads. Sounds just like this beast, except this one's not scarlet. The beast that we see here in Revelation 17 is scarlet. And the beast that I saw was like a, a leopard. Its feet were like bears and its mouth like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon, that is Satan, we find that from chapter 12, this is Satan, he gave the power, his power and his throne and great authority. So this beast is one with great authority. And one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, right? risen from the dead, like a false Christ, Jesus, dead, risen from the dead. And that's who this beast is. He's sort of a false Christ. He's an antichrist, if you will. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And here it is. They worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against us? And, and this prostitute is riding on top of the beast, riding on the back of the power of this beast. And we'll see later what the heads and horns represent, but we'll, we'll catch that as it comes. I simply point out that how, how this beast is said to be, have great power against which no one can fight. Revelation 13, 4, and who is like the beast who can fight against it? I mean, that's consistent with, with the prostitute who's seated upon many waters, who has practiced her trade with the kings, all the kings of the earth, verse 2 of chapter 17, in complete control of the peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages of the world. Just this prostitute is right in line with this beast, whoever they are, like we haven't even explained. I'm just describing the vision first. And then, like political cartoons, you take the vision, and then you need to explain the meanings and the symbolism behind it. We'll do the best we can. Verse 5 describes a woman further. We go there. It says, um, verse, verse 4, rather. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. The first speaks about the beauty of the prostitute. She's wearing expensive royal clothes, suitable for kings and dignitaries and wealthy people. She's adorned with precious jewels, perhaps to attract her lovers towards her. And with her front and center is her sin, pictured here with a golden cup. 
which he almost hosts high, like, let's toast. Let's toast to the sins and the abominations of the world. It may look nice on the outside, golden, but it's inside it's a sin that will actually bring down the prostitute. The book of Proverbs describes such a woman whose, whose lips drip with honey, whose speech is smoother than oil, like this prostitute is. Very attractive. Very go after her. But in the end, Proverbs 5, verse 4, in the end she's as bitter as wormwood and sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. And this is really a picture of the pleasures of the world. Attractive and seductive, to be sure, but in the end leading to death. It's the way of the world. The way of the world is death. It's not the way of Christ, and that's what we see here. And notice again this appearance, right? The metaphors of sin, the sexual immorality of the prostitute, the drunkenness which comes through drink. Those are just metaphors of, of sin with the prostitute, one who is unfaithful to God. So anything that's done that's an unfaithfulness to God, that's what this prostitute represents. Okay, we see more about this prostitute in verse 5. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Quote, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Right there, right on her, right on her head, right on her face. That's who she is. She identifies herself as Babylon. This great prostitute is, is Babylon the Great. And this is the same Babylon that we're going to see in, uh, next week in Revelation chapter 18. This Babylon that will fall. Revelation 18 verse 2. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. This goes back to chapter 16 verse 19. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Like they're all coming together. Right, all these things. I was 1619, right? He's remembering about he's going to destroy Babylon. And now we're getting the first picture of Babylon. Babylon is like this, this prostitute that attracts people to pursue her in her fleshly desires and sin. And, and I think this mention of Babylon gives a clue to how to interpret Revelation. Because in John's day, Babylon was not the power of the world. It had been a power some 500 years before. And it had fallen already. So, like, in some regards, chapter 18, verse 2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. That's old news. Of course Babylon has fallen. But we're talking about some future, something in the future. This isn't talking about Nebuchadnezzar. This is talking about something even even in the future of how God's final judgment will be. And, And in John's day, it was Rome that was in control. He was on the island of Patmos as a political prisoner of Rome. Babylon had been destroyed by the Persians centuries before John even lived And here in in Revelation, John sees the future judgment coming upon Babylon. And I think really you have two two ways to understand this. First, there's a literalistic understanding. would understand Babylon is is raised up again, right? In the Middle East, Babylon raises up. Iraq, again, rises up to be this dominant over everybody, the kings of the world. So it might be destroyed, as according to Revelation 18. That could be. Or Babylon is merely a symbol used to picture the powers of the world, which I think makes a lot more sense in light of apocalyptic literature. Just Babylon is this power, the power of the world. And I think almost all commentators, everyone I've read, understood the latter view to be correct, right? Babylon's the picture of power that will be judged. The world power, every nation, all the nations coming to it, as it says in verse 15, right? The multitudes and peoples and nations and languages. Now, John may well have understood that as Rome, as a worldwide power of his day. And we may well understand this, as the United States, China, and Russia, whatever world powers there are. Like, Babylon is talking about the, the dominant power of the world. 
It's not that America and China are in the Bible, listen, right? but, but as world powers pursuing their pleasures, and does America pursue their pleasures? Oh, you bet we do. We fulfill all that Babylon represents. So in other words, right, the prostitute here is a picture of the world that's against the Lord and against his Christ. I think that's the point of verse 5. Babylon the Great, here it is, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Babylon is the mother of sin, essentially. So uh, you're almost going back even, even before Babylon. So we're talking about this being the mother of prostitutes, the mother of earth's abominations, the mother of sin, the source of sin, if you will. And Babylon, apocalyptically speaking, was in the Garden of Eden, seducing Adam and Eve to sin. Babylon was, was Egypt, holding the, the Hebrews in slavery in, in Egypt. Babylon was Assyria, who came and destroyed Israel. Babylon was Rome. Babylon is with us today. That's what Revelation 17 is talking about. It's the source of all the earth's abominations that will be judged. And they're judged in the, the pictured here in the great prostitute. And the best way to understand this picture of a prostitute is the, the world against God. The, the prostitute that just goes the way of the world and seeks to seduce and attract the world. That's what the prostitute is. We see in verse 6 how anti-God she is. She's against the people of God. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This prostitute seduces the world into her pleasures, and she murders all who resist her will. She delights in doing so. That's the point of drunkenness. Killing faithful believers, drinking their blood and being delight, delighted in that. And here, this is the call for revelation, right? It's the call for endurance and overcoming the world. If you want to be faithful to the Lord, you will be hated by the world. The world and all its seductions will hate you and maybe kill you. Jesus warned us of that, John 15, to his disciples. Soon after he was to be put to death, he said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of this world, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Right? We, we follow Jesus, and as Jesus was abused and killed, so likewise, that's the path that we could take. At least hatred is the beginning of that. And that's what we see in Revelation chapter 17. We see the world hating the followers of Jesus. And here, this time, in Revelation, it means death. And Revelation is calling us to be faithful unto death. We may not be seeing the, the, the persecution of the world upon us unto death, but some places in the world see it. Nigeria's churches are being burned. Try being a Christian in Muslim nations. You'll see it. Death sentence for sure. If you put out that you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, follower of the Lamb, that happens today. And we may in America experience this in the future. I don't know. God's been gracious to allow us to live in such a time where we don't. But that's how you understand Revelation, right? Written to a persecuted people that they need to be assured of the faithfulness of Jesus is the path to blessing. Look back at chapter 14, verse 12. I preached this a few weeks ago. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and faith in Jesus. It's a call for endurance. That's what Revelation's calling us to. It's calling us to endure and be faithful to Christ and not follow after the prostitute. Don't be seduced by the things of the world. That's what Revelation, Revelation's calling for. And then verse 13, notice the tie-in with death. Because it was close. 
for those who heard this originally. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. For those original readers, following Christ may well have meant death. But they're blessed if they follow in that way. The way the curse to follow the prostitute, to follow the ways of the world, because the woman is destroyed in the end. But those who follow the Lord even to death will be blessed. Those who trust in Christ and are faithful to him, will be their, their, he will be their husband, will be married to Jesus, Revelation 19, and will enjoy the new Jerusalem forever, Revelation 21. But those who find their pleasures in the prostitute will die in the end. And I say, church families, how we need to live, right? Live beyond today. Don't just think about today. Don't just think about tomorrow or next year or a decade from now. Think about eternity. And you want to follow the way of the world? Revelation is telling us the way of the world is the way of the prostitute that seduces people to follow after me, that hates Christians, that kills them. But you need one that says, no, to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's, it's, it's better if I die faithful to Christ. Don't deny him. Be faithful until the end. We need to live faithful to his promised blessing and away from the prostitute. All right, that's my first point, the prostitute. Here's my second point, is um, the mystery. Um, the end of verse 6 really picks up our, our story. Uh, when I saw her, that's when John saw her, the prostitute, I marveled greatly. I think I'd marvel greatly too. Like this is, whoa, this is strange stuff. <laughs> and the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carry her. <laughs> okay, great. We're going to hear the mystery. That's where I get my second point. I will tell you the mystery. And John prom- the angel promised to tell John the mystery of two things, the woman and of the beast. Now, what's interesting, if you read here from verse 8 follow, and following, you see the beast mentioned in verse 8, and he hardly comes back to the woman except to speak about her destruction. Um, Kistemacher in his commentary says, this is because the beast is more important than the woman. Maybe. It might just be that we've already talked a lot about the woman. There's enough clues there to talk about the woman, to understand the woman. Maybe he's talking about the beast, going to explain that. I don't know, maybe it's stylistic. I don't know, it sounds reasonable. I, I don't know why he ignores the woman after saying, I'm going to tell you the mystery of the woman. But that's what he does. But he starts talking about the beast. The beast you saw, verse 8, was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. Now, throughout the book of Revelation, we see God described as him who was and is and is to come. Near the beginning of Revelation, we hear, Revelation 1, verse 4, John to the seven churches are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Later, this is how God identifies himself. Revelation 1, 8, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. It's how the four living creatures address the Lord in worship. Day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And the phrase here in chapter 17, verse 18, comes close because I said in chapter 13, when you read about this beast, it's trying to be like a false Christ. Trying to be like God. The beast you saw was and is not is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. It's because Satan tries to imitate the Lord by becoming an imitation, an imitation of him. Right? In Revelation 13, we talked a little bit about the unholy trinity. 
You got the dragon, similar to Satan, similar to God the Father. You got the beast, similar to the son, who has died as a mortal wound that is healed. He comes to life. And then you have the false prophet, who's like the spirit, pointing people to, to worship the beast. As the spirit does, he points people to worship Jesus today. And you see this unholy trinity tries to be like God, but he falls short because it says in verse 8 that he is not. It's because as John hears it, this beast is someplace in this bottomless pit, awaiting for the time when he'd be released from this pit. So somehow this beast now is, is in the pit. Chapter 13 speaks about him roaring about. This pit we know about in Revelation chapter 9. The swarms of locusts coming out of this pit. But somehow this beast is in the pit. He's just not right there at the present time. At his arrival, many will come and follow after him. Here it is, uh, second half of verse 8. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. And here's what the beast is ultimately seeking, seeking worship. He wants worship from the world, and the world gives it to him. You remember chapter 13 and verse 4? They worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying... Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? They're worshiping the beast. That's what he wants. He wants people to worship him. Revelation 13, verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. There's a caveat here, though. There's a caveat in verse 8. Look at the caveat. He says, And the dwellers who dwell on the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast, because it was and is not and is to come. That same caveat is made in chapter 13 and verse 8. If you look there, it says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose names are not written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. It's great comfort in these passages. Don't back away. Lean into these and embrace them. If you believe and trust in Jesus, you can be sure your name is in the book of life. In fact, if you believe today, and trust in Christ, you can be assured that your name was written there from the foundation of the world. God has known you before you were born, Galatians 1.15. God knows the days that were ordained for you when it said there was not even one of them, Psalm 139, verse 16. Before the world was ever created, God had this book, and he writes his elect, he writes his names on there. And to those people, he's granting repentance and faith. So they come to believe. And so if you come to believe, it's God who has brought you there. And you're eternally secure because God is the one who began his salvation in you. He'll bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Even through days of persecution and hardship. Like the original readers of Revelation were, were facing. And I'm sure they would have been comforted by these words. That God's in control. He's got your name written. You're set. You're firm. Press on. He's got you. Well, the angel continues in verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. All right, here it is. That's signaling, hey, some really tough things coming. And uh, to me, I'm just saying, I have no idea what this is talking about, just so you know, all right? I will do my, my best try at this, okay? What follows is really tough to understand. Verse 9, this calls for a mind with wisdom. Maybe some of you have it more than I do. That's fine. He says, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Okay, well, some say, oh, this is Babylon, seven mountains. That's got to be Rome, because Rome is a, known as a city built upon seven hills. Unfortunately, though, it doesn't say seven hills. It says seven mountains. 
Right? Rome, Rome is, is built on hills. Rome is not built on mountains, and we got these mountains. And nobody knows here what particular mountains were being talked about here. Maybe, just being consistent with apocalyptic literature, seven mountains simply mean the whole world. This is where he is. Maybe. That's my best guess. So these seven heads are over the whole world on which the woman is seated, right? Because you tie that to sitting upon the many waters, and the waters are the whole world. And so if she's sitting on the mountains also, then these mountains are the whole... That's how I come to my conclusion. I think that's best, not that trying to find the seven mountains, which also gives you a hint, if that is the case, of how to interpret the literature. Just seven just speaks about everything. It's the fullness. It's everything. Like seven churches, and lots of seven. Seven trumpets, seven seals, seven bulls. Like it's just finishing stuff. And here it is. It's just to finish everybody in the world. Okay, so the seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also, verse 10, seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other's not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. At this point, great wisdom is, is needed. Because everyone has a theory about who the fallen kings are and who the is king is and who the king that is to come is. Some see this as a, a series of Roman emperors. Right? These are five Roman emperors and then the, the Roman emperor over the, um, the Rome right at that time and then another Roman emperor to come. Well, the problem with that is it's pretty just right there. Um, some people believe Revelation's all been fulfilled. That's okay, but they believe that. But, but there weren't just seven Roman emperors. There were several others you have to ignore in order to get to this exact five. So you're like arbitrary coming up with five. I don't know how you do that. Some see the Old Testament empires as these kings. Egypt, back in Moses' day. And then Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, which is the time of writing, and then some future empire. Well, that again, you've you got to like throw out some other nations. Like Solomon and David in his day, Israel was pretty strong. Why isn't Israel in there? Why does it go straight from Egypt to Assyria? And, and why is there, after Rome, like Rome's been gone for a, a long time, why is there some power? Like what are there, it's multiple world powers have been since then. So it's just, it's just all sort of arbitrary. And, and some see this then as entirely symbolic of a, another example of conflict between God and Satan. Just a, a series of just people always against God and Satan. I'm not a good enough student of history to know any of these things. Uh, I just say, <laughs> one of these is right. Maybe none of these are right. I don't know. But just speaks about, again, this world, power, dominion. over there. But whoever these kings are, or will be, they are against the Lord. I think that's the key thing. Whoever they are, they're against the Lord. They do not like the Lord. And it only gets more confusing if you look at verse 11. It says, As for the beast that was and is not, it is but an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. But this beast is the one who had the seven heads in the first place, and its seven heads that came out of this was part of the seven kings, and now it says the beast is actually the eighth king, but he's got these seven kings, and now he's the eighth, but does the eighth mean he's got seven more? I have no idea. It's apocalyptic imagery, and just look, it's got power over everything. But it is headed for destruction, like the woman. And it only gets worse. Verse 12 tells of more kings to come. So remember that this beast had, had seven heads, and, and on these heads were horns. It had ten horns, so some heads maybe had two horns, and some heads only had one horns, maybe some had three, I, I don't know. But ten horns on these beasts. And the ten horns you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. 
So it's not just these seven heads that are kings, nor the beast who's a king, nor the horns also, but these horns also are kings. And, and the kings, it's interesting, the, the, the head kings seem to come in sequence after each other, but the ten kings all seem to kind of come all at once. But the reign is short-lived, only for an hour. And I have no idea whether this is a literal 60 minutes or whether it's symbolic of just a short time. I just say it's probably a short time. It's really hard to reign as a king for only 60 minutes. But it's probably a short time. Right? Our shortest president, I'm guessing now, William Henry Harrison, maybe 22 days? Anyone know? Something like that. Just a month. He got sick on his inaugural parade, I think. That's a pretty short time. Um, there were some in the Old Testament. I think Tibney was a king for only seven days, what I remember. I don't know. I'm just thinking about it. it's hard to just be a king for an hour. I think it's a short time. But it seems like they had some sort of council together. All these kings, all associated, all put into power. They all sit in this council together, and they, they counsel to cede their power to the beast. That's what verse 13 says. So somehow they're appointed only to cede their power to some greater power. Maybe that is for an hour, because you've got some, um, whatever, government sort of thing, and they just give the power. That's verse 13. These beasts are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Well, that's what, that's what John saw. And you can, you can go at this point down two paths. You can spend your days reading history and your newspaper in attempts to figure out who these kings are and were and are. And you can anticipate these kings to come. And you can try to think about, oh, these ten kings coming out, and they're going to have this council together, they're going to cede their power, and try to figure it all out so you know. And chances are you're going to be wrong, all right, because of the diversity of opinion, Right? You see how many opinions are out there and how many, if there's one that's right of, of all these different opinions, how many you're going to be wrong, you're going to miss the timing, and you're going to worry and fret and lean on your own understanding. Bad option, I think. I think a better option is simply grab the main, main point. Whoever these kings were and will be, they will all bow to the king of kings. They all lose. And that should give you great comfort in Revelation. That's the point of verse 14. Look at this. They will make war on the Lamb. All these kings, right? The beasts and all these power. All the peoples of the earth. They'll make war on the Lamb. This, this little Lamb. And the Lamb will conquer them. For, this is why, because He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. And those with Him are called chosen and faithful. The simple point of the passage, right? All the world powers all gang up and unite against this lamb, against this Jesus, and Jesus wins. And Jesus brings along his friends. They're identified here as called and chosen and faithful. Called and chosen, right, from God. This gets back to the names written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. These are the ones that God calls. These are the ones that God chooses. With his disciples, he said, you did not choose me. I chose you. I brought you into this. God has called and chosen those who will overcome the beast of all the kings who bow down to him. That's comfort, is it not? That we're with the lamb because he has brought us and he's chosen us to be on his team so we conquer with him. And the faithful is us, right, who believe and trust Christ until the end. He endures to the end to be saved, the one who stays faithful to Christ, who just clings onto him. And I'd rather cling onto this lamb who could defeat everybody than ever worship this beast and this prostitute. I'd say this, church family, may we all be found faithful. All right, one last point. 
We've seen the prostitute. We've seen this mystery explained, which was all about the beast rather than the, the prostitute. But we're going to hit some of the prostitute right here. So maybe that's the second part is part of it. It's, I'm calling it the judgment. Because this is when you see the destruction of, uh, of the prostitute. And the judgment of the prostitute comes. Verse 15, And the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Right? We've seen that in verse 1. The waters represent all the peoples of the world. It shows the worldwide power of this prostitute, domination of, of her. Verse 16, And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. And they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Remember the picture I put, painted before about being in the West and, and you're riding and galloping along your, your, your royal steed and you're doing okay and this woman was? Well, it's at this point that the beast turns against the prostitute. This may be a better picture. Where once she was riding high on top of a beast like a, a cowboy rides on top of a horse, now the beast is more like a bucking bronco seeking to kick her off the bat. And then when she falls to the ground, going to stomp him. That's how short-lived dictatorships are and powers are. When she falls to the ground, the beast here strips her of her power. It makes her desolate, so she has nothing. She's naked, takes off her flesh, whatever, whatever there, devours her flesh, eats it up, and then burns her with fire. That is right. The beast allows the prostitute on his back to exert her power and influence, the seduction of the world when it helped him. But when the time came for him to come on the scene, he's not going to take second place to anybody. I mean, you hear that in the presidential uh, nominees. Say, would you be vice president? Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm here. I'm the first guy. I'm number one. And that's what this beast is. This beast is the first one. Right? He's not going to take second place to the prostitute. And he comes on the scene, and she's going to be devoured. But it's interesting. Who turned the tide? What turned the tide of this, this beast to, to turn against the one that was on his back? God did. God is the one who changed the heart. Look at verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind. It's God's purpose, one mind with those rebelling against the prostitute and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. God was one mind with these ten kings who gave power to the beast. It, it just shows that, that God is in control. That just as God writes her name in the book of life, which keeps us and preserves us, God also exerts his influence of, upon people to join in, right, against the power of the, the prostitute, all in God's plan. And then verse 18, here's the mystery of the prostitute. We finally see who the prostitute is. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Prostitute is Babylon. We'll look at the downfall of Babylon next week. Revelation 18.2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Here we see the judgment of the great prostitute. Babylon, the world system, the lust of the world, is all going to be destroyed. Okay, I have two, two applications for you, all right? First one is comfort. You should be comforted by these words. So many people read Revelation and become fearful of what's going to happen in the future. Some people don't want to read Revelation because they just don't want to know because they're so scared of the book. I was scared of the, I was scared of the book before I started preaching. I remember in small group, Dirk saying something about, well, we're going to do Revelation next, but it's really hard. I don't know how, what it means. And Dirk, you kind of says, like, well, so why are you doing it? And I'm like, because it's hard. It's there. Right? I preached to Leviticus before. Like, let's preach to Revelation. Let's go through the hard text and let's just deal with it head on and admit our ignorance and admit 
But, but catch the main point, right? The main point is about comfort. We're in his book. Let's stay faithful until the end. It's intended, this book is, to bring blessing upon our lives. Chapter 1, verse 3. The whole reason, blesses the one who, who reads and the one who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. To be comforted by this message. You, you will not be comforted if you're pursuing and, and joining up with the prostitute of the world. But if you say, you know what, no, that prostitute's out there and I'm staying away from the world, then you'd be comforted. Even if the world hates you, be comforted that, that, that God doesn't hate you. God loves you. My second application comes straight from John's writings. John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Familiar verses, familiar words. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I say, church family, don't love the world. That is the sinful practice of the world. The lusts of the flesh. Don't let your lusts of your flesh satisfy themselves. Not in the world. Satisfy themselves rightly. The desires of the eyes, right? Don't look big. The pride of life. It says we've got it all. Just pray the prayer. We didn't pray me this morning. So rise, O Lord, be our help. Rise, O Lord, be our help. Don't be proudful. Don't be pride of all that I got. Don't love the world. Because, why? The world is passing away. Is that not what we see here? The prostitute will be destroyed. The beast will be destroyed. Even as powerful as they are, they'll be destroyed. It's passing away. The, the reason why we don't pursue the lust of flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is because we know that it's passing away. And if we love God, we won't love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Those are diametrically opposed. You either love the Father or you love the world. I think of this prostitute holds all the power and allure of the world. This prostitute is the one who, who gratifies the desires of the flesh. She satisfies the desires of the eyes. She has and promotes the pride of life. But don't be fooled, church family. She's passing away. Along with the world, she is passing away. Don't love the prostitute. Don't love the world. Love the Father. He's been gracious to us in Jesus. Can you say amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for texts like this, which are so easy just to pass by and so easy just to say it's too confusing. Let's not take any effort on that. But we, we've taken a head on, and I have tried the best I can to just open your word and catch the main point. Help us to think about eternity. Help us to think about the thing that's right and that's pleasing to you. God, Christ has died for us. How can we not also but live for him? 2 Corinthians 5.15, oh God. Stir us afresh in the things that you love, may we love. I pray for your small groups. That, that you love the church, may we love the church. You love your people, may we love your people. God, we love because you first loved us in Christ Jesus, pouring out his life for us, forgiving us of all our transgressions. So God, may that stir us rightly to know you and to love you and to serve you and to glorify you and be happy in you. I, I know this is the path of happiness, this is the path of blessedness to avoid the prostitute, to avoid the seductions of the world. All I can ask, God, is that with us in this congregation, you would keep us from the evil one. 
You'd keep us from the world, but you'd keep us in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.